And I'll encourage you uh, to grab a Bible if you brought one. You know, I kind of laugh at God's providence and His timing. I'm like, the kids are in the service, and our topic is sexual immorality this morning, but it is what it is. I I don't plan this. Uh, It's just the next part of the book that we're studying. Um, Today, and kind of all week, has felt a little bit uh, heavy related to this topic that we're addressing. Um, Our passage in in the second half of 1 Corinthians 6 deals with sexual immorality, and as you look around our culture and as you look around the church, um, our world, our culture, and the church is just being ravaged by sexual immorality. Um, As a pastor, I I talk with lots of people who are dealing with uh, different issues, whether it's uh, a single person and they've got some issues and some sin, or if it's a married couple, or if it's a dating couple, or uh, I I talk to lots of different people dealing with lots of different things, and primarily, probably 80 to 90% of the things that people come talk to me about are related to sexual immorality. Whether it's an affair that happened, or pornography, or premarital sex, or whatever it is, oftentimes it is related some way to exactly what our passage addresses. And so it's relevant to us. Um, Our society really uh, is falling apart when it comes to these things. And I don't think that I'm being overdramatic. I mean, you look around the world and sexual immorality is just destroying the fabric of society. Um, You look at transgender ideology You look at LGBT propaganda, you look at the culture's approach to just casual sex, Um, it's a religion. It's a false god that our world is worshiping, the god of sex and sexuality. And now, in the last 10 years or so, we're actually offering our children as sacrifices to this false god. Um, And it's destroying society. And above and beyond that, many Christians and many churches have simply bowed the knee to this false god of our day and age rather than fight. It's just, it's just easier. It's less complicated. And, then, and so we have churches and Christians who just kind of go along and maybe LGBT stuff is fine and it's blessed by God. Maybe two men and two women should get married. Maybe, maybe sex within marriage is too strict and it's an outdated I, idea. I mean, we have several churches in our own denomination that have been removed because they decided to fly the, the LGBT flag at their church and just bless and marry gay and lesbian people. Like it's happening in our own denomination. Um, Even just this week as I was studying and preparing, something came uh, uh, in my, you know, news feed or whatever, and there was uh, recently in the United States a drag queen who preached a Sunday morning sermon in church, invited there by the pastor to kind of break down stereotypes and, and affirm people. And you have transgender pastors, you have non-binary priests, you just have all of this sexual immorality in the culture that is now bleeding into the church. I think things that we're seeing in our DNA would make Sodom and Gomorrah blush, the kind of stuff we're seeing going on. 
So here's an area, if you as a follower of Jesus want to swim upstream against the entire culture, it is in the area of sexuality. And I've said it before, and I think this is the area where churches and Christians will be persecuted if you want to stay true to the biblical gospel. That's what's happening in our world. So a couple of goals for this morning uh, that I had, that I've been praying about all week, a uh, couple of things that I want to, to accomplish as we kind of go through this text. Number one is that our hearts would just break for the sin uh, that we see in ourselves and in our church and in our world, that we would just cry out to God like Isaiah does, woe are we. Um, secondly, that we would repent um, I knew this was going to happen. As I thought, well, how do we respond to all this? I think my prayer has been that we would repent, that we would turn away from sexual immorality. But above all of that, my, my hope this morning is that we would see God's design, biblical sexu- sexuality, that it is actually the best for our own flourishing. That we would not say, oh great, now I have to follow these rules and now I can't do it. That we would see biblical sexuality as so good and designed by God so that you would flourish. So the context of our passage is 1 Corinthians 6. And as we've seen already, the, the, the Corinthian church, they had some very bizarre ideas in the name of wisdom, right? In chapter 5, there was a man who was sleeping with his Uh, stepmother and the church wasn't kind of doing anything about that and then in chapter six you had uh, you had uh, Christians defrauding each other and then dragging each other to court and just kind of damaging the reputation of the church and now we see in the second half of of chapter six that some Corinthian Christians were actually visiting prostitutes and and not really seeing that as a big deal it's not it doesn't actually affect our spirituality So Paul is actually going to make four points this morning, I believe, uh, from our passage, why sexual immorality is so damaging and so terrible. But more more than that, he's calling the church back to, to the gospel and why the gospel is so magnificent and so worthy of us pursuing sexual purity in this life. So four points, I believe. So let's start uh, chapter 6, verse 12. This is what Paul says, and it says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and he will raise also and will also raise us up by his power. Um, Paul's first point is this. Why why should we uh, avoid sexual immorality? Number one is what you do with your body matters. And it's interesting, Paul is actually responding to a few Corinthian sayings uh, in in verse 12 and 13. Now, in the original languages, there's no such thing as quotation marks Right, so Paul wouldn't have added quotation marks, but from the context of the passage, most scholars go, yeah, these sayings that Paul's responding to, they're not his sayings. They're sayings that the Corinthian church were, were saying among themselves. 
So he starts by saying, right, in quotes in your Bibles, all things are lawful for me. And Paul responds by saying, but not all things are helpful. And then again, the saying, all things are lawful for me, but Paul says, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now, the third saying, I actually think, uh, goes beyond where scholars have put the quotation marks in your Bible. And there's actually quite a few scholars that, that think the, the Corinthian saying was, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. That whole thing, that whole kind of mindset being this, this Corinthian saying, and Paul responds to that by going, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. So you see, Paul's responding to some worldview issues in the Corinthian church. Everything's lawful for me. I can do whatever I want. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food. Who cares? God's going to destroy them both in the end. So what we have here in the ancient world and for these Corinthian Christians is a dualistic view of reality. Um, This is often called Gnosticism. It's the idea that reality is kind of split into two realms, two areas, the physical and the spiritual. And you, you yourself, you're split into two things, your body and then your soul. And the ancient world's view was body, physical, bad. And soul and the spiritual is good. That's what you're trying to aim for. And so what developed out of that kind of dualistic thinking of you are split into a body and a soul and your soul's good and your body's bad, what developed was, well, then it doesn't really matter what you do with your body because it's bad anyways. So bodily appetites like eating and sex, it's just a matter of indifference. Who cares what you do? It's not right or wrong. It's just immoral or amoral rather. It's just, who cares, right? It's just your body. Your soul is what matters, not your body. So do whatever you want with your body. Your body can have anything it craves. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect your soul. And we all know that your soul is what really matters. And so Paul then is responding to these statements that they would make. All things are lawful for me. So this is Christian liberty taken to the utmost extreme. Right? When, I, when I say Christian liberty, it's the idea that in Christ, you and I, we have freedom. Now, notice that when Paul responds, all things are lawful for me, he doesn't say, no, they're not. He says, not all things are helpful. I won't be dominated by anything. So Paul is admitting that there is Christian liberty when it comes to following Jesus, right? We have unbelievable freedom as followers of Christ, right? And the whole New Testament was helping these Jewish Christians understand you're free from the law. You don't have to obey the law to be saved. So you don't have to get circumcised anymore to be in uh, the kingdom of God. You don't have to honor days and festivals. You're free from that. You can eat. You can drink. I mean, in our day and age, you know, can I, can I take my kids trick-or-treating? You have freedom to decide in Christ. You have unbelievable freedom. Can I watch a movie or a TV show or can I play you know, some cards with my friends? You have freedom to do things in Christ. We're not under the law anymore. So you have freedom, but not when it comes to ethics and morality. So freedom in Christ is not just unqualified license to do whatever you want and gratify all the desires of your flesh. That's what the Corinthians thought 
Well, Christ has set us free. Sweet, all things are lawful for me. I can go visit prostitutes. I can get drunk. I can commit sexual immorality because I'm free. Right, Paul? And so Paul is correcting this overemphasis on Christian liberty. Right? In verse 13, they're saying was, food's meant for the stomach, stomach's for the food. Who cares? God's going to destroy them both in the end anyways. So Paul's whole first point is your body matters. Your body is not irrelevant when it comes to the kingdom of God. Now, unfortunately, in years past, churches, whether subtly or, or not, taught this same exact message. What do we call it when you have a big evangelism rally? We're, we're, we're soul winning. So what really matters about the person? Just their soul. We just want their soul to go to heaven. We don't care about their bodies, right? And there's some Christians who have the idea that, well, it doesn't really matter. God's just going to destroy everything anyways, and then we're going to float around in heaven one day, just our souls. That's not what the Bible actually teaches. Your body matters, So I love Paul's response. It is brilliant, right? All things are lawful for me. He goes, okay, but but they're not all helpful, right? You don't want to become enslaved by something, do you? So the real question for Paul is not whether an action is lawful or right, but he's reframing it going, okay, you're saying all things are lawful, but is is it actually good for you? Is it beneficial to you? Are you being enslaved by it? Every decision you make as a follower of Jesus should not necessarily be, am I allowed to do this or not? It should be, is this beneficial to my walk with Jesus or not? Will this freedom in Christ that I have, is it going to enslave me or overpower me? Um, I I did youth ministry for years, and every February— um, we would have our, uh, our month where we taught about sex to the teens. We called it sexuary because I'm a brilliant wordsmith. <laughs> but every February, and the kids just knew it, for the next four weeks at youth, we're going to talk about sex. Uh, inevitably, every month, there was always someone or multiple kids who raised their hand and said, how far are we allowed to go before it's sin? What kind of stuff can we do before it's like, oh, now you cross the line? And so I used this analogy. I said, imagine on stage if there was a, a fire, like a big barrel fire going right now, burning, like big fire. And imagine if I'm over here and I douse myself in gasoline, would the proper question to ask be, I wonder how close I can get to that fire before I die? No, that's the wrong question. How close can I get to death before I burst into flames? And I said, that's what you're asking. There's sexual immorality. How close can I get to it before I sin? And I go, you're asking the the wrong question. The right question is, is this actually helpful to me? Is this beneficial to my walk with Jesus? If I go and start dating and, and we just make out and kiss, but we never have sex, is that helpful to your spirit? To your body, is that going to help you? Are you going to be enslaved by it? That's what Paul is saying. You're, you're asking the wrong questions. Um, even today, adults ask me that question too. So it's not just teens. If you're here, your parents ask the same questions. How much can I drink before it's drunkenness? That's the wrong question. The right question is, is my drinking beneficial to my walk with Jesus? Am I being enslaved by it? 
So Paul's whole first point as he engages this worldview in Corinth is what you do with your body matters. It matters what you do with your body. Your body, he says, is not meant for sexual morality, but it's meant for the Lord. And God raised up the Lord, he's talking about resurrection, and he will raise us up by his power, your future resurrection. I don't know if you're aware of this, but in the new heavens and the new earth, eternity is physical. You will have a body for all eternity, right? The Christian worldview is not that you just float away and now you just sit on a cloud, right, like the cream cheese commercials, and you just play the harp, and now I'm in heaven. That's not reality. The reality is heaven actually comes down to earth, and we spend eternity with physical bodies. So what you do now with your body matters. And Paul says, he, he equates it to the resurrection. It matters because Jesus was raised from the dead, and he will raise you from the dead. So if you think about our world, our world has bought into a dualistic mindset when it comes to our bodies. It's like we've, we've disconnected what we do with our bodies with who we are as a person. And that kind of, those kind of uh, pithy statements that the Corinthians said, I mean, we, we say those all the time. Everything's lawful for me. I can do whatever I want. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food, sex for the body, body for sex. Who cares? Right? And we hear things like, well, love is love. Who cares? Whether it's heterosexual or homosexual or bisexual, who cares? It's just a physical act. Why are you so bent out of shape about it? Just, it's just an urge. It's just your body. Who cares? And now, recently, right, we've gone oh, oh, uh, even a step farther. Well, you're a biological male, but you feel like a woman. Well, who cares? Who cares what your body says about you? Just carve it up and change it to how you want to be. Sex before marriage? Who cares? It's just an urge. And so we've disconnected what we do with our bodies with our, our souls. And then we have, we have apps that you can just, you know, find a quick hookup on. You just swipe. I don't even know which way is the right way. You swipe one of the ways, and then you just go and hook up with someone and just have casual sex with them. And so this worldview where what you do with your body doesn't really matter, it's based on a materialistic view of the world. It's where your body is just a product of purposeless, amoral, Darwinian forces. It's just evolution. All that exists is the physical. So really, who cares? Your body has no moral significance. And then our view of sex and sexuality is, is shaped by that. Look, listen to some of these quotes. Peter Singer, who's a professor, he says this, Sex raises no unique moral issues at all. Decisions about sex may involve considerations of honesty, concern for others, prudence, and so on, but there's nothing special about sex in this respect. For the same could be said of decisions about driving a car. Right? There's nothing special about it. It's just a physical urge. And sure, you can care about a person's feelings and respect for others, but really, you, you make the same decisions when you get in your car and drive down the road. So who cares? Sex is not special. Um, one college student said this, why get to know someone first? It's a waste of time. If you can hook up, you can get your needs met, and just get on your way. Um, even Christians uh, have bought into this kind of dualistic mindset. What you, what you do with your body doesn't matter. Um, there was a survey done by Christian Mingle, so keep it, take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> But it was self-identified, I am a Christian, who responded to this survey. 61% of professing Christians said they were willing and open to just having casual sex. 11% said, no, I'm going to wait for marriage. 
Only 11% of self-professing Christians said, I'm going to engage in sexuality the way God commands. Everyone else said, what's the big deal? So Paul's whole first point is, your body's not meant for that. Your body's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Jesus exercises his lordship not just over your soul. Jesus is Lord over your entire body, your entire existence. Romans 6 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Notice that Paul's talking about your body, not just your soul. He says, your body belongs to Jesus now. What you do with it matters. So don't buy into this culture's view where you're just kind of a, a mixed match of parts slapped together in your body and your mind. And no, you are one person and your body matters. Secondly, Paul says, here's why you should not engage in sexual immorality. It's because you are joined to Jesus. Verse 15, he says this, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So Paul's whole second point is, okay, why shouldn't you engage in sexual immorality? It's because you are now joined to Jesus. Your body is a member of Christ now, and there is this kind of union that exists between believers and Jesus. Um, Romans 8 says this, but if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. There's this kind of union that exists between Jesus and believers. The spirit of Jesus dwells in you, in your body. So Paul says, he, he, he says, we are now members of Christ. And then he gives this analogy. Would you take a member of Christ and join them to a prostitute? And he says, never. And the word is basically like unthinkable that you would do that. And it's actually meant what Paul is doing is he's painting a grotesque picture of mixing and matching body parts. He's saying, would you take a part of Jesus, so disconnect this body part and go and slap it on and make this frankincense, uh, frankincense? No, Frankenstein-type monster with a prostitute, this grotesque. And he says, no, of course, that's unthinkable that you would do that with the body of Jesus. He says, you're a member of Christ now. You are joined to him, so don't then give yourself over to sexual immorality. It's unthinkable because it separates you from Christ. You are essentially renouncing his lordship over your body and it's irreconcilable to the, to the resurrection life. Paul says, don't do it. You belong to Jesus. Paul goes on to say that if you actually join yourself to a prostitute, you become one body with her because it's written, and, and then he quotes Genesis, the two will become one flesh. So here's the, here's the lie that you need to just kind of get out of your mind. There is no such thing as casual sex. 
There is no such thing as sex without enduring consequences. Paul says, don't you know? Don't you realize that if you're joined to someone, you become one with that person? And the word one, it's used in a few different areas. In, in woodworking, it's the idea of uh, piece, uh, pieces of wood being glued together. And in the area of metal work, it's actually the words used to describe two pieces of metal that have been welded together. He says, don't you realize that that you become one with someone. You are literally glued to that person forever. This is why God designed sex to be enjoyed in the context of marriage because it is literally two people joining their entire lives together as one, right? In Genesis 2 and in Ephesians 5, the, the two shall become one flesh Right? It's like, it's literally, right, it's the image of two people literally becoming one person. That's, that's why God designed sex to be within a marriage covenant that never ends in this lifetime. That you will not break this covenant because you are one flesh with them. And um, when we do premarital counseling, uh, we often talk with people that, yes, the one flesh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's sex, it's your bodies, but you're, you're, you're meant to be one person in every area. And so sometimes we have couples that are like, yeah, we're going to get married, but we're going to keep separate bank accounts, and my check goes to here, and that's my money, and this is her money. I'm like, red flag, you are one flesh with them, including your finances. It's not her money and my money. It is our money. We are one flesh. C.S. Lewis said this, those who have sex outside of marriage are trying to isolate one kind of union, sexual, from all of the other kinds of unions which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. So there is something profound and spiritual and amazing that happens when a husband and a wife come together and they become one flesh. So listen, God is not against sex. He designed it. He created it for marriage, for your flourishing and for your enjoyment. But Paul says when you engage in sexual morality, don't you know that that's like taking Jesus and joining him to a prostitute? Would you ever do that? No. It's, it's just in, uh, it's unthinkable to do that. And so Paul says the second reason that we don't engage in sexual morality is that you are joined to Jesus, right? Verse 17 says, you're actually one spirit with him, right? He, so he's using the analogy, husband and wife become one flesh. If you are a follower of Jesus, you and Jesus, your spirits have become one. He's, he's equating that to how serious it, it is. You're one spirit with him. Thirdly, why should Christians not engage in sexual immorality it's because it actually destroys your body. Verse 18, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So Paul has said, what you do with your body matters. You are joined to Jesus now. And now he says, because those things are true, flee sexual immorality. The word flee literally means to escape. It's to seek safety by, by flight. I don't mean like an airplane, but by like I'm, I'm getting out of here. I'm fleeing. So notice what Paul doesn't say. When it comes to sexual immorality, Paul doesn't say, hey, stand your ground and fight the temptation. 
Paul doesn't say, yeah, put on your battle or your armor and, and battle against sexual, imita- uh, sexual temptation. In other places, we're told to stand firm and resist. James 4, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So we don't flee from the devil. We resist and the devil flees. 1 Peter 5, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Paul doesn't say this about sexual immorality. He doesn't say, if you're tempted sexually, resist the temptation. No, he says, get out of there. Run away. Literally flee that temptation. Don't think that you can resist it. Run. Don't mess around with it. Like it's the example of Joseph, right? In Genesis 39, when Potiphar's wife comes on to him, he doesn't go, whoa, 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 let's just talk about this and here are the reasons why I can't engage in this sexual immorality. No, he doesn't try and resist the temptation. What does Joseph do? He literally leaves his clothes and runs out of the house. Flee from it. So why? Why is sexual sin so unique? Well, Paul tells us all other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, some of you might say, well, wait a second. Sexual immorality isn't the only sin against your body. What about drunkenness? What about gluttony? What about suicide? There seems to be lots of sins where you're sinning against your own body. So Paul's not referring to just what physically affects you or injures your body. Here's the difference. If you struggle with drunkenness, it doesn't make you one flesh with alcohol. If you struggle with gluttony, you don't become one flesh with your food. This one flesh union is only true of sex. Therefore, sexual immorality is unique. Paul says, all these other sins you're committing outside of the body, but if you commit sexual immorality, you are sinning against your own body. It's actually been studied studied and proven that casual sex and pornography and adultery and sleeping around, it actually affects your body physically. The ramifications of sexual immorality are massive. Sex involves your body down to the level of your biochemistry. It actually changes your brain. Um, If you've taken the Conquer course, uh, you know when it comes to pornography um, that it actually actually destroys your body physically. Um, Studies have been done. Men who watch porn after marriage are twice as likely to get divorced. So men, if you want to double your chances of getting divorced, pornography actually, it's been shown to shrink your brain. It reduces neural activity. When you watch pornography, you are literally giving yourself brain damage. It leads to violence. It destroys relationships and intimacy. It feeds sex trafficking and prostitution. This kind of hookup culture that we live in it is, it is literally unraveling the social fabric. It produces isolated, alienated adults who then come together for physiological release. People don't know anymore how to create strong, resilient bonds to have a fulfilling marriage and a, and a fulfilling family. Do you know the two top prescribed drugs at universities in the United States are birth control and antidepressants? And you go, well, it's not related, just this casual sexual culture. It's not affecting our bodies and our mental health. Yes, it is. It is destroying our own bodies. That's why God says, 
don't, don't even mess around with this. Don't try and be strong and I can resist. There. No, he says, run away. Flee from it. Don't make excuses. Don't even give an inch to sexual immorality because it will destroy your life. But we do, don't we? We flirt with sin. Ah, it's just, it's just bikini photos. It's not porn. I'm just, I'm just flirting with my coworker. It's harmless. It's not cheating. Sure, there's, there's sex scenes in this movie, but you know what? We'll just, it's only a couple minutes, and, it's, and I don't want to miss the plot, and so we'll just kind of watch through it, and it'll be fine. Sure, my eight-year-old can have an iPhone that literally has the entire internet and unlimited access to porn on it. It'll probably be okay. I trust them. They won't look for stuff. You know what God says? Flee! Stop flirting with sexual immorality. It's going to destroy your body. Like if I, if I invited you over for dinner, let's say, and I made a cake, and it's kind of split into pieces, and I said, just for fun, I put poison in one of the pieces. But there's 12 pieces. So just pick one. Odds are you'll be fine. Like, would you eat it? No, you would be, are you insane? I'm going to kill myself. And yet we do the exact same thing with sexual immorality. This will probably kill me or destroy my marriage or, or inhibit me from ever having real intimacy. But what can you do? Like we do. We're literally eating the poison and destroying our own bodies. Paul says, flee. Get out of there. Lastly, the reason that we flee from sexual morality, and probably the most important, is because Jesus paid an enormous price for you. Paul says in verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul says, don't, don't you Christians know that your body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit? If you're a follower of Jesus, the spirit of the living God dwells inside of you. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. Paul says, your body is a temple. Now, that would have been shocking news to first century Christians because they lived, Corinth was a city that was full of temples to gods. And you could walk down the street and go worship Artemis and then go worship Zeus and then go worship Baal. And each one of these gods has a temple. And so sometimes Christians were asked, where's the temple for your God? And they said, we actually don't have a temple. We are the temple. Like that was unheard of. Wait, the church and you individual members, your God lives inside of you? You are the temple? So Paul says, don't you know that? Don't you know that the Spirit dwells in you and you're not your own? You were bought with a price. And the price he's talking about is the precious blood of Jesus spilt for you. 1 Peter 1 says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Like the price that Jesus paid for you is 
is just unthinkable. On, on one hand, you have the physical price that he paid. Crucifixion is the most excruciating way you can die. That's where the word excruciating comes from, from crucifixion. Uh, Jesus experienced humiliation, torture, pain, grief, abandonment. He was nailed to a tree, naked, to be mocked. And above and beyond that, there's the spiritual price that Jesus paid for you. Um, Your sin was literally put onto Jesus. And the wrath of God against your sin was poured out onto Jesus instead of onto you. Um, Jesus paid an immense price. This This is what he paid to save you. And so Paul says, don't you know you're not your own anymore? When you surrender to Jesus, you belong to him. It's a transfer of ownership. You used to belong to the kingdom of darkness. You used to be a slave to sin. But now, because of the price that Jesus paid for you, you belong to him. You are now a slave to righteousness. He owns you. So when you realize that, when you realize what Jesus suffered and the price that he paid for you, it, it changes your perspective on the things that you do with your body. You go, I'm not my own. Jesus suffered immensely for me. And really, I'm going to go and just engage in all of this sexual morality. I'm going to look at porn and I'm going to uh, commit adultery. I'm going to do all of these things. No, you, do you realize what Jesus went through to purchase you? You're not your own. Honor him with your body. So our culture... Our culture would look at the Christian moral ethic around sexuality and they would say, oh, those Christians just have a low, restricted, damaging view of sex. And actually the opposite is true. Our culture has a pathetic view of sex. What our culture has done is we've just reduced it to this biological urge, disconnected from your soul, disconnected from your emotions, from your person. It's just physical. Who cares? And the same thing was going on 2,000 years ago in Corinth. All things are lawful for me. God's going to destroy my body anyways. Who cares what I do with it? But Paul tells them, no, it, it actually matters what you do with your body. In the here and now, it matters. You've actually been joined to Jesus, and and so because of that, don't mess around and toy with sexual immorality. Actually flee it, run from it, because Jesus paid an enormous price to set you free. Um, I I thought for a long time this week, I mean, how do you you close a time? I know it's it's this heavy message, and I think uh, we need, as a church, to just close in repentance, um, some of you here are, are living in sexual immorality. Um, s- some of you, maybe from the past, and you've just kind of buried it away, and I'm not going to talk about it, I'm not going to deal with it. And, and what happens when you're engaged in sexual morality is that then there is shame and there's guilt that's heaped on you, and the enemy would love, would love to keep you in shame and guilt. Do you want to know why? Because that just makes you sin more. And so some of you this morning, the response to your sexual immorality is you need to confess and repent. You need to bring it into the light. Um, Some of you here this morning have been affected by sexual immorality. 
and you have the same kind of shame and, and guilt. But the response is the same. I mean, both people need to run to Jesus. That's where you're going to experience any kind of freedom from it, is to come to the foot of the cross and confess and repent. So I, I want to give some space. I realize that the, that the kids are in here with us, and that's fine, but we're just, I'm just going to give you a minute or two to just pray, um, to repent, to turn to Jesus. My, my prayer all week is that we wouldn't just go, yeah, I know I got stuff in my heart, and I know that I have sexual immorality, but it's so awkward that I'm just going to kind of push it down and then leave. You will, brother, sister, you will never experience freedom if that's your response. You will just continue to be trapped in sexual morality. So take this opportunity, right, if the Spirit is convicting you to say, no, I need to deal with this now. So let me give you a moment, and we'll, we'll just keep the room as silent as we can and just spend time praying, and then I'll pray to close. Um, once I pray to close, uh, I know Corland and Dawn are here, and, and I'm putting Emily on the spot. Emily's here as well, but we'll just kind of wait up front. If you need to pray with someone, sometimes it helps when you're confessing and repenting to do it with someone, and we'll just kind of wait up front. We would love to pray with you. Um, we'll just leave this place as a place to just do business with the Spirit, and if you've got your kids and you need to go, that's fine. You can, you can go, but we want to just give opportunity to deal with our sin and bring it to Jesus. So take a minute or two and pray, and then I'll pray in just a moment. So Jesus, we um, come before you just really broken. And sometimes I look at our culture, I look at our world, I look at the church, I look at my own heart, and I just feel like Isaiah, just saying, whoa, are we. I have an unclean heart. And I dwell in the midst of a world of just sin. So God, would you forgive us? God, I know that in this room that there are people who are just living in sexual immorality. Whether they feel trapped or whether they've just believed a lie. Whether they feel like they just can't get out. Uh, Jesus, would you just forgive us? God, we, we know that you have designed our sexuality with our own flourishing in mind. And, and yet we've taken it and we've twisted it and we've destroyed it. And so, God, we just repent. We turn from that. Um, Jesus, I know even in my own life, just the tendency to just flirt with it, to make excuses for it. When literally it's destroying our families, our own bodies, our churches. Oh, forgive us, Father. So I just pray for everyone here. I know, God, 
that um, shame and guilt just kind of piles on and we feel so dirty and so unworthy to come to you and we feel so ashamed of the things that we've done. But when we believe that lie, then we just stay in more shame and more guilt and more sin and then we turn to the very things that we're ashamed of because it gives some kind of relief. So God, I just pray that you would just break us out of the chains of shame and guilt that we would just come to the foot of the cross and confess our sexual immorality and repent of it and turn to you, God, that we would realize that it actually matters what we do with our bodies. That if we're followers of you, we have been joined to you, Jesus. We're, we're your body. That we should flee from all sexual immorality, not defend it, not make excuses for it, not flirt with it, but flee it. Because, Jesus, you paid an enormous price for us. I pray, God, that the gospel would sink into every dark place in our heart. That you would just wash us and cleanse us. And that the, the, the image or, or, or the, the things that we say as we leave wouldn't be like, what am I allowed to do and what am I not allowed to do? And where's the line and how far can I go? But that that we would just see you crucified for us and that the gospel would captivate our hearts and that we would go, I don't want to live like that anymore. That old, that's dead. I'm done with it. I want to glorify God with my body. So God, we just ask that you would do a work in our hearts. God, I pray that you would heal marriages So many marriages. That you would just heal the hurt that's been done between husbands and wives. God, for singles who just have bought into this lie that you would heal their brokenness. Spirit, you are, you are so able to do that. And so even now, God, would you just shine the light of the gospel into our hearts and do your healing work and would you wash us and cleanse us, Jesus? And so we just pray all of this in your mighty name. Amen.